Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be back with you again this Lord's Day. Our family and I were, I've lost my glasses. Where's my wife? Where's, that, where's everybody? I can't see anybody. Hey, I was going to say, I took one week off and went down. Thanks, brother. Little brother. There you all are. We were down in Lexington last week, um, worshiping with those guys, and they asked me to fill the pulpit down there, but it, it really is good to be back with, with you guys, with, our, with those who know us and love us and serve us so well. So, um, yeah, just we love you guys so much and missed you guys. Please open up in your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to focus our attention this annual Mission Sunday on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what Christ would say to the church. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. As you know, there are certain things absolutely necessary for the health of the Christian life. And at the same time, there are all sorts of other things, and here the list is quite large, that are not necessary for the health of the Christian. For example, when it comes to what is not, I repeat, not necessary, we would, I hope, say a a, a nice coffee bar at church or children's ministry, or stadium seating. We could add to that list a slick website, online giving, state-of-the-art lighting, uh, a raucous band, and a really cool, hip, relatable pastor. None of that is necessary for a healthy Christian life. In fact, most of it is probably detrimental to a healthy Christian life. But you want to know what is absolutely essential. Faithful preaching. Faithful, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered preaching is to the soul what a healthy diet is to your body. And without it, you will be malnourished, and eventually you will wither and die. Or at the risk of overstating the case, without preaching, you don't have a church. Without preaching, you don't have ministry. Without preaching, you don't have healthy Christians. And without preaching, you don't have missions. And then the whole Christian enterprise withers and expires. Now, the importance of preaching and its relation to missions is something that we're going to focus in on this morning. But before we do that, I need to give you some context. You can't eat until the table is set. So let me give you, especially because we have quite a few new members here at Redeeming Grace, let me give you a little background about this whole annual missions Sunday. Every year, 
On the third Sunday of February, we pause and we do so to take inventory. We set aside this Sunday to really focus on global missions and and the part that we as individuals and as families and as a congregation, the part that we all play. Now, as I say that, it is altogether possible that two thoughts immediately flood your mind. You might be thinking to yourself, well, why the third Sunday of February? And then you might also be thinking, well, why have an annual mission Sunday at all? Let me really briefly answer both. We have chosen the third Sunday of February because of a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first American overseas missionary. And it was on the third Sunday of February, 1812, when this young missionary, he was 23, when he and his new bride, they had married less than two weeks earlier, set sail from the comfort of America to Burma, of all places, to make much of Christ. And so in honor of Judson, and in honor of his wife, and in honor of their sacrifice, this congregation sets aside the third Sunday of February to inflame the fires of our hearts for the fame of Christ's name across the globe. Let me answer the second question. Why do we have an annual mission Sunday at all? Here's the reason. It's actually quite simple. Because if your heart is anything like mine, then I would suspect that you are often apathetic toward global missions and the global purposes that God has to exalt His Son through the gospel all across the world. Let's just be honest. We fall asleep at the wheel. We get tunnel vision. All that captures our attention is what is taking place in our very small lives, like right here and right now. And so this Sunday, Annual Missions Sunday, it is meant to be a screeching siren that rouses all of us from our spiritual sleep. So with all that being said, I want to return to the absolute necessity of preaching, particularly in the endeavor of missions. And I want to pound that nail because, please hear this, there is no missions without preaching. There's no such thing as missions without preaching. While certainly digging wells, building structures, and feeding people have their place. And don't misunderstand me. Those really do have a place. None of that is preaching. None of that is actually the gospel. And so narrowly speaking, none of that is missions. Now granted, it's, it's kind It's service, it's humanitarian, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but it is not missions. Missions exists because the worship of the triune God doesn't. Missions exists because churches don't. And the only way that churches are planted and the only way that the triune God is worshipped is through individual people like you and I coming to turn from their sins and to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And that does not happen through painting walls. 
It only happens through the proclamation of the gospel. You've no doubt heard that horrible phrase. Always preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. That's like saying, always make omelets. If necessary, use eggs. Now, I'm sure there are some of you out there that make omelets without eggs. They're just not omelets. Don't call them that. There is no such thing as preaching without words. And more to the point this morning, there is no such thing as missions without the gospel. And that is because the gospel is to be proclaimed, and that is essential and indispensable and critical to biblical missions. Which is why... Here in 2 Timothy, once again, Paul sort of rings this bell of preaching. Now, you perhaps will remember 2 Timothy is the last letter that we have from the apostle before his death. This is his swan song, if you will. It is written from a prison cell. The apostle Paul knows that death is imminent, And so he takes up his pen, and he does so to encourage his beloved friend and his brother, Timothy. And he longs to encourage Timothy to take up the mantle and to continue to preach the word of God. It's like like Paul is saying to Timothy, again, from a prison cell, Timothy, you must preach the word of God no matter the cost. For without preaching, Timothy, the kingdom will not advance. Disciples will not be made. Churches will not be planted. Missions will not occur. And Christ will be robbed of the rightful glory that is His and His alone. So with the necessity of preaching, I trust at the forefront of our minds... I want us to taste and see four truths about preaching that come from our text. The first, and no doubt the most important, is this. Preaching revolves around Christ. Say that again. Preaching revolves around Christ. Christ is the center, the aim, the target, the goal. Christ is the sun in which all the solar system orbits. This is certainly what Paul is alluding to there in verse 8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. It's worth pointing out that nearly every syllable there is worth dwelling on. Like Like a fine wine, you're not meant to chug it, but to savor it, to enjoy it. He begins by speaking of Jesus. It's in verse 8. Remember Jesus. Well, remember, church, Jesus is the name given to the Christ child. A name that, just like Him, came from heaven. And this is significant because the name Jesus, it means God saved. God saves. And so Jesus, he is the the right arm of God's salvation. 
This is why the angel Gabriel said in Matthew 20, uh, 21, you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So don't just gloss over this name because it is so familiar to us. The name of Jesus is a life-giving name. The name of Jesus points to the person of Jesus who is the salvation of God. Next, as we swirl this beautiful wine around in our mouth, you have Christ. And Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. It's a title that means anointed one. And so when the Scriptures tell us that Jesus is the Christ... What the scriptures are telling us is that Jesus is the promised anointed one of the Old Testament. He is the one, as Jimmy so helpfully put it already this morning, he is the one that all the prophets looked forward to. When we say and we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we are saying that he is the promised prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament scriptures. And Christ has come on to the scene, this anointed one. He's been endowed with the Holy Spirit. He's been filled with the Spirit of God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This same Christ, we are told in verse 8, was risen from the dead. There's so much freight carried along here. After having died as a substitute for our sin, after having died in your place, Christ didn't stay dead. In fact, he walked out of the tomb on resurrection morning. And he didn't just walk out of the tomb as the victim. He walked out of the tomb as the victor. And all kinds of promises come flooding in the wake of Christ walking out of that tomb on Easter morning. By emerging from the grave on that glorious day, Christ killed death. He vanquished hell. He paralyzed sin. And he crushed the skull of that ancient serpent who deceived our first parents. Not to be missed is that this same Christ is, the middle of verse 8, the offspring of David. That is to say, he is a son of David. Remember, David was the ancient king of Israel. And we know from the Scriptures that Jesus is no mere son of David, but but actually he is the greater son of David. You'll remember in the Davidic covenant that God had made promises to David that, that one of David's sons would sit on his throne and he would have a kingdom that knows no end. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ is that greater son of David. That is why the confession of the Christian church for nearly 2,000 years has been what? That Christ is king. That he is Lord over all. And as Lord over all, he is worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor and all obedience. And not just in sort of some generic terms, but he is worthy of all of our worship and honor and obedience. And that's because he is your king and my king. So step back. 
And look at this glorious resume of our Lord contained just in the beginning here of verse 8. And as you do, I want you to understand that there are at least two truths that have to be leaned into at this point. And the first is this. This is a message that must be preached. The end of verse 8. As preached in my gospel. So again, it's not enough to paint houses, help old ladies across the street, and teach people to farm and fish. Such deeds might help fill bellies and offer some sort of temporal relief. And make no mistake about it, as Christians, we should desire to help in those ways. Don't misunderstand me. But the actual gospel must actually be preached. And until it is, we have left missions undone. And if you were to push back and ask, well, why? The reason is this. What you need and what I need and what every single person on planet Earth needs more than anything else is Christ. And Christ does not come to us by you and I looking up to the stars or by looking down to the earth or by dreadfully looking inside to ourselves. Christ comes to us from outside of ourselves. Christ comes to us through the proclamation of the gospel. This all bleeds in to the second truth to lean into. Look at how Paul begins verse 8. He says, remember, remember Jesus Christ. Now that should strike you as a bit strange. Why on earth is Paul the Apostle having to remind Timothy, mind you, this guy's a pastor. Why why does Pastor Timothy need to be reminded of Jesus Christ? Well, I will tell you. Because Timothy, like each and every one of you and me, we are all so prone to forget. We all suffer from this sort of chronic gospel amnesia. Right? And it is a vicious disease, one that robs us of our joy and our assurance. And so in an effort to awaken us and Timothy from slumber, it is as if Paul is saying, don't forget Timothy. It's not enough to talk about sort of generic spiritual things. You must preach Christ It is not enough, Christian, to be kind, to be generous, to be moral. Christ must be proclaimed. It is not enough, missionary, to teach English as a second language, to pour a foundation, and to bake a bunch of goodies. Christ crucified, died, buried, and raised from the dead must be heralded. That is what missions is. But, and here we mustn't miss this, and this is really the the second truth to see and savor. This sort of preaching brings opposition. This is something we can't sidestep. Verse 9 is clear. Paul says, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. 
Mark my words, Christian. No one will get mad at you if you help people. No one will get mad at you. No one will harass you. No one will get on social media and defame you if you spend your life clothing and feeding those who are in need. There will be zero, zilch, no ruckus, even if you speak again very generically about God and love and peace. But know this, if you preach Christ, then you will find yourself on the receiving end of opposition. Paul did. Remember, he, he's in prison. He's in a jail cell, little ones cover your ears, because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus Christ. He is not in prison because he was helping feed people. He is in prison because the proclamation of the gospel was a threat to the regime of the time. And that is because it heralds that Caesar is not king, but Christ is king. What I hope this dispels is any false notions that faithful Christianity or faithful preaching or faithful missions that it will somehow result in the world and the church sitting together, holding hands around the campfire, singing kumbaya. It won't. I would implore you, Christian, to read the Scriptures. The prophets were persecuted. John the Baptist's head was put on a platter and his body was nowhere to be found. Christ was crucified. The apostles were hunt down, hunted down and executed. Which means the Great Commission is not just a great commission, it is also quite hazardous. Biblical missions doesn't revolve around taking a trip to a fun place, building a fence, posting it on Instagram, and then coming home. As Pastor Dave has said recently, that's not missions, that's adventure. The very fact that preaching brings opposition is made more than evident, I think, not just from Scripture, but also when we consider the origins of some of the hymns that we sing. You've probably sung, depending on your age, if you're older than me, if you're older than 40, that hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. The origins of that hymn are fascinating. Back in the 1800s, a Baptist missionary, who we don't know, found himself somewhere in northeast India proclaiming the gospel. What we do know is that this particular region was littered with all sorts of various tribes, many of whom were actually quite violent and dangerous. Well, this nameless Baptist missionary brought the gospel to this particular region. And by God's grace, a man and his wife and their two children were actually led to embrace Christ. And then, like dominoes, owing to this recent convert's evangelistic zeal, now it wasn't long until scores of the villagers were confessing Christ. It was beautiful. Until it wasn't. It caused the chief of the village to be filled with rage. As far as he was concerned, this white foreigner's religion had no place among his people. The chief's solution was simple. 
He summoned all the families of the village together, and then right there at that meeting, he singled out that first convert, that first family, the man and the wife and their two children. And he brought them forward, and he spoke directly to that man right there on the spot, and he said, you have two options, renounce Christ or die. The man responded, I have decided to follow Jesus. At such a response, the chief was enraged. He immediately called the archers who were standing by to fire. All of a sudden, right before this man's eyes, his two children fell to the ground, filled with arrows. With blood and cries pouring forth from his dying children, the chief asked this man once more, Will you deny Christ? You have already lost your children. Will you lose your wife also? The man said, Though no one joins me, still I will follow Jesus. This time his wife fell to the ground. With the man's wife and children lying dead at his feet, the chief said, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. The man responded, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Again, the arrows came, and this time they sunk deep into the body of this brave Christian martyr. What happened next, though, was truly remarkable, a miracle, really. There the chief sat in his seat, and as he looked at the corpses in front of him, he was visibly shaken. He wondered to himself, what would possess a man to lose everything for this Christ? And as the chief considered the faith of this man and his family that he just killed, right there and then, on the spot, he stood up and he declared to everybody, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And later, an Indian missionary turned those final words of that faithful Christian martyr into the hymn that I know most of you have sung today, I have decided to follow Jesus. I share that with you for two reasons. One, I trust that it encourages your soul. And two, because it no doubt resonates with our passage. It is on account of Christ, and on account of Christ and Christ alone, that Paul is, verse 9, suffering. That he is bound with chains as a criminal. And I would simply paraphrase the words that Christ spoke to his original disciples, then I will speak to you today. If they hated Jesus, and if they killed him, if you preach Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to you? This is sort of one of those litmus tests, one of those barometers that Christians in the 21st century should be able to take. If every single person and every unbeliever that you know loves you, then you might be doing it wrong. If you're not getting any pushback for being a faithful Christian, it is possible, just possible, that you're not actually being a faithful Christian at all. But notice in our passage, even though Paul is incarcerated, the Word of God is not. 
In fact, not only is the word not incarcerated, the word by very definition cannot be incarcerated. Look at the declaration at the end of verse 9. Paul says, I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Sure, the prophet Jeremiah was thrown in the bottom of a well. And yes, Jesus was fixed to a cross. And, and yeah, I understand the apostle Paul was, was put up in prison, but not the word of God. The word of God goes forth. It can't be stopped. Like a wildfire, it continues to persist and move along. Just as the sun rises each and every morning and with its mighty hand pushes out the darkness, so the Word of God will do its powerful work. I trust this is a great encouragement to your soul. I know it is to mine. Think of the encouragement that it is to me as a preacher. For you and your personal evangelism. Think of the encouragement that it is to to our entire church and the Highways and Hedges ministry that is starting just next week. Think of the encouragement that it is to those who are doing missions work. You can't shut up the Word of God. You can't contain it. You can't silence it. The Word of God will and forever prove effective. to really get this into our bloodstream. The prophet Isaiah employs a glorious metaphor. God says through his prophet, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You you see what the prophet is saying? The, The rain falls and the crops grow. The rain falls and something happens. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's Isaiah 55. Church, don't miss the great rebar that this is for our souls. Despite your foibles and foolishness, Despite your fears and failures, despite your crummy evangelism, my poor and inadequate preaching, and the apparent ineffectiveness of the missionary abroad, despite all of that, God has promised His Word will accomplish what He has sent it forth to accomplish. This is true. Whether we are talking about salvation or damnation, you'd better believe, brothers and sisters, that God is at work in powerful ways in and through the preaching of His Word. And that is because when the Word of God is empowered by the Spirit of God to testify of the Son of God, the Word is unstoppable. It is effective. Now, on this annual Mission Sunday, we have seen how missions is dependent upon preaching. And then we've seen how preaching revolves around Christ, preaching brings opposition, preaching is effective. Finally, I want us to revel in this. Preaching is the means by which God 
saves. Preaching is the means by which God saves. To see this, put your eyes on verse 10. The apostle says again from prison, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Now, lest I be misunderstood, when I say that preaching is the means by which God saves, this is what I mean. Let me, let me clarify. God and God alone saves. And God saves only through Christ. God is perfect. We are not. So Christ, God's Son, was born like us, and He was born for us. And as this unique God-man, as this mediator between us and God, he perfectly obeyed God's law, meriting righteousness for us. He then died on the cross, being exposed to God's judgment and wrath for us. Then, three days later, Christ was raised up from the dead, announcing pardon, eternal life, and resurrection glory can be ours. And as the resurrected and ruling king, that is what he holds out to all the world. If you are not a Christian this morning, that is what Christ holds out to you. He makes you that promise even today. Christ says to us in the gospel, turn from your sin and embrace me by faith and faith alone. And what will Christ do? Christ promises, I will forgive all your sins. I will give you my righteousness. I will fit you for heaven. I will transform you from the inside out. And I will raise you from the dead. So the point is this, church. Christ is is the Savior. Christ is our salvation. And the only way that we lay hold of Christ is by grace alone through faith alone. And this is a truth that we can't budge from, that we can't move from. This is a hill Christians die on. And that is because this is the hinge that the gospel turns on. So how can I say, out of one side of my mouth, that preaching is the means by which God saves, and then on the other side of my mouth, that Christ and Christ alone is the Savior? Well, put your eyes back on our text and put both eyes on it. Let me ask you, why does Paul choose to suffer in verse 9? Why does he, if I can put it in sort of kind of a colloquial phrase, why does he put up with it? Verse 10 answers, I endure everything. Why? Paul, why are you mocked, beaten, tortured, imprisoned? Why are you, why are you putting up with all of this? Why do you go through it? Both your eyes are on verse 10 still, right? Don't look at me. I'm ugly. Verse 10, why? For the sake of the elect. So Paul is joyfully willing to play the fool, to be treated as the scum of the earth, to literally be in chains as he is writing this. Why? For the sake of the elect. Now at this point we have to pause. 
with a pause because I realize that there are some Christians out there who immediately break out in hives if someone even mentions the word election or elect when it comes to the Bible. But be that as it may, we have to reckon with the fact that these are not my words or John Calvin's words. These are not words invented by Calvinists. These are Bible words. You know what else is a Bible word? Predestination. Just don't say it very loud. So let's at this point, let's just put to rest this whole idea that God doesn't speak to us about these things. He most certainly does. And part of our job as maturing as a faithful Christian is you and I bowing before him and receiving his word as his word. Right? This, this is God's word. Verse 10 is not Ryan. This is God's word. What Paul is saying is that he puts up with all this nonsense for the sake of the elect. Another objection at this juncture is that dusty and cranky doctrines like election, that it actually hinders missions. You ever heard that? I can't tell you how many times I have been told that the Reformed don't evangelize. And why would they evangelize? They believe in election. If election is true, then aren't we all just sort of chosen and frozen? What's the point of anything? Well, how do we respond to that sort of accusation? Does election hinder missions? The answer is no. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. Just ask Paul. Paul was the greatest Reformed Baptist ever. Yes, I said that. And Paul was, among other things, a zealous evangelist. And if you were to try to pin down Paul and go, Paul, how is it that you believe in predestination and election and all this high-octane doctrine and you are a zealous evangelist? You know what Paul would say? Paul would say, these high-octane doctrines and truths over here, they are not meant to be kept in a glass case, tucked away as if not to be scratched. These are doctrines to be lived by. These are doctrines and truths that energize the soul. For Paul here in our passage, the fact that there is an elect people of God does not hinder missions. It is actually wind in his sail. He was convinced that God has his elect people. And by that I mean this, the Father has predestined from before time ever began a particular people that he would bestow his saving grace upon. Christ has then come willingly at the behest of his Father to take to himself a human nature, to live the life that we never lived, to die the death that we don't want to die, and to shed his blood and redeem those people that the Father has given to him. And the Spirit of God in space and in time will then cause, 1 Peter 1.3, cause the elect to be born again and actually to believe the truth of the message. If you are a Christian, that is all true of you. You might not like it. You might kick against the goads. That's fine. But that's what the Bible says. And so rather than things like election hinder missions, what election does biblically is it actually guarantees the effectiveness or the success of missions. It ensures us and assures us 
that our work, whether it is on the other side of the globe or the other side of the street, Christian, it is not in vain. Think of the alternative. The alternative is that the so-called success of missions is left up to the will of sinful man. No thanks. Or maybe it is left up to the pragmatism of missions agencies. Or even worse, the success of missions is left in the hands of Satan himself and his evil designs. No. No, not at all. God and God himself has guaranteed the success of missions by God having his elect people and by his people proclaiming the gospel and God working through that gospel to bring regeneration, to bring new life. This is why you believe the gospel. Not because you're better than your neighbor, smarter than your neighbor, more intelligent than your neighbor, more spiritual than your neighbor. If you believe the gospel, it's because God has bestowed upon you a sovereign and particular grace, which is why you should praise God and not the guy you see in the mirror every morning. But, and here's how verse 10 fits into all of this. Again, these same elect people, they got to hear the gospel. And so Paul preaches because he knows, he's convinced, he is confident that God will work grace in the heart of the elect when they hear the gospel preached. Catch this. It is through our preaching and through their believing, verse 10, that the elect obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but brothers and sisters, this is intended to humble and invigorate. Through the feeble efforts of preachers and missionaries, through words being spoken, through inhaling and exhaling and, and vocal cords and all these things that I don't understand, through, through blowing air through our faces, God is at work for the eternity of his people. That's nuts. That's nuts. You know what our daughter says to things like this? My mind just got blown off. That's what Oakley says. Literally, new life is created by the Spirit of God as we preach. It's too much. It's too much. This idea is only made more evident when you look at verse 10 a bit more closely. We read, for the sake of the elect, that they may, that the elect may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That verb that is used there, obtain, it has the sense of receiving something that is out of one's reach. The point is that our salvation is beyond us. It's like when your kids go out in the driveway and they stand on their tiptoes and they go, Daddy! I can almost get the moon. It's not even close. In our finite and worse, our fallen state, we can't get there. More to the point, we don't want to get there. In our natural state, the Bible says we hate God. We hate Christ. There is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. Not even your sweet little aunt. No one. 
So then how does Christ come to us? How do we reach the moon, if you like? Christ comes down to us through preaching. Through the foolishness of preaching, Christ comes to our hearts and our souls. And we are saved. Our eternal destiny is shifted through preaching. Now, don't miss the forest for the trees. We've come full circle. Preaching is an absolute necessity because it is in and through preaching, through the words of ministers and missionaries, that souls are saved. Preaching the gospel is the highway that the Holy Spirit drives the car of salvation on. And so we cannot, not even for a breath, minimize preaching. This is especially true when we consider missions on this annual Mission Sunday. Whether we are praying for missionaries or whether we are considering what future missionaries we will support, I would encourage you as individual families and us as a church to get behind preaching missionaries. I would suggest this should be our heart, our desire. We want to see Christ lifted up. We want to see him trusted and treasured by all the world. And that will only happen through preaching. So the missionaries we will support ought to be faithful preachers, church planters, pastors, evangelists, again, those who proclaim the message. And redeeming grace, I recognize, well, not all of us are called to be preachers or missionaries, though some of you are. Some of you are. We are all, make no mistake about it, if you are a Christian, we are all called to make much of Christ. So I would encourage you to pray about and think through specific ways you can speak of Christ. Parents, your children, they are your primary missionary field. You better pour into them God's word. You only get them for a couple of years. Pour into them God's word. You who are students, you who are at school or or university, wherever God has placed you, make much of Christ. And Christian, it could be at the coffee shop, could be at the park, it could be at the mall, if people still go there. God has called you to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And there's some real practical ways that we as a congregation are are trying to equip and encourage all of us in this fight. Join the Highways and Hedges ministry, again, in six days, and let's preach Christ together. If you're available on Mondays, join us at the mill and proclaim Christ. Head over on Saturdays to the Royal Columbia next door and exalt Christ. You, You remember our mission statement? We exist to exalt the triune God by by embracing His gospel. 
there's more, and engaging those around us. Have you embraced Christ? Well, praise God. Praise God. Now, go and engage those around you with Christ. And as you do, know that God's Spirit is with you and that Christ is exalted. Are you going to muck it up? Yeah. Are you going to do it poorly? Yes. Are you going to misspeak? Yes. Are you going to be scared? Yes. Join the club. Join the club. But the Word of God is not bound. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in yourself or your own eloquence, you are destined to fail. Destined. God doesn't get glory if you got it all figured out. The Word of God is not bound. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for annual mission Sunday. We thank you, as Pastor Justin has already prayed, that, that in this congregation there's only two options. There's goers and senders. And so as those who would go, we pray you'd raise them up, that you'd fill them with the Spirit of Christ, that you'd send them out on mission to make much of Christ in a foreign land and to a foreign people. For the rest of us, those who are, um, what did I say, goers and senders, Father, uh, for the rest of us, that we would be faithful in our prayer and our financial support and our encouragement to send. But let us not think that we can sit on the couch. God calls us to go across the street, to go across the cubicle, to go across the, the, the to, to go into our community and make much of Christ. Let us not do such things because we think that, that by getting so many notches in our belt that we'll somehow gain our standing before you. But let us do so simply uh, breathing in and breathing out the air of grace and gospel. We pray that you would do these things in the name of Christ, the Savior of the whole wide world. Pray these things in his name. Amen.